You have your Bibles, and I trust that you do. If you can open with me to John chapter 5, the Gospel of John chapter 5, and welcome to the, our 12th week um, of our journey through the Gospel of John. And just think about where we've been so far and what we've seen. You know, four chapters, John 1 through 4, that clearly show us again and again and again that Jesus is God. Jesus is introduced to us in the first chapter as Creator. He is the eternal word, meaning he was in the beginning. And that word became flesh and dwelt among us. And his glory has been seen and experienced. And he gives grace upon grace upon grace. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We have heard from his own lips that he is the son that God gave to the world and that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. As John the Baptist declared, he is the one that must increase. He must become greater. In the first four chapters of John, Jesus is revealed as the Word, the Light, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, the Messiah, the Bridegroom, the Living Water, the Only Begotten Son of the Father, and the Savior of the world. And this morning we come to John 5 where we shift now from a curiosity concerning Jesus to opposition toward Jesus. And we'll see this in the next few chapters in John. And in the beginning of this chapter, chapter 5, Jesus comes face to face with a picture of brokenness. And praise be to God, Jesus didn't run away from brokenness. Instead, he actually drew near to the broken. He drew near to the broken. And we know that a person can be broken in a number of ways. We are all, apart from Christ, broken spiritually. That's all of us. A person can be broken emotionally. A person can be broken physically. A person can be broken mentally by all of the experiences of life. Let me just make a very definitive statement this morning. Life will break you. Life will break you. Nobody can protect you from that. Yet, our God is able to do something in and through our brokenness. He is able to shine His light and display His glory even through our brokenness. Now, let me just show you a quick example. I've never seen a kid not captivated by a glow stick um, in a dark place. In fact, I've got a whole bunch of them, um, so you can have fun later if you would like. But glow sticks shine bright, fluorescent colors um, for all to see. Yet in order for a glow stick to glow, what must happen first? Okay, it has to be broken. It has to be shaken. I mean, the reality is glow sticks are unassuming and not worthy of our attention really until one defining moment, until a moment of brokenness. And all it takes is a few snaps and a, a quick shake, and what is inside then begins to, to glow. It almost feels like something inside the glow stick um, should be broken altogether, and you shake it all up. And then as you do so, you begin to see something beautiful, something really that you can't miss. And really, there is something satisfying about feeling something break in between your 
your fingers and, and shaking something. There's something satisfying there. But here's what I know. From the standpoint of our lives, it's not always fun to think about how many times you and I have been broken and shaken. How many times circumstances of this world have broke us and snapped us and shaken us. It's not fun to think about those things. It's painful. It sounds a lot like brokenness. It's such a humbling, painful, and yet beautiful place for us to be. A place that many of us dread. And it's easy sometimes for all of us to forget the beauty and the joy that can come from this bittersweet place because we're too busy trying to survive the brokenness or the shaking. And if you're a member of the human race, if you're a member of the body of Christ, you know what it's like to be broken to some degree. I think of the way one author, James Ollie, put it, one believer put it. He says this, the church is not a select circle of the immaculate, but a home where the outcasts may come in. It's not a palace with gate attendants and challenging sentinels along the entranceways holding off at arm's length the stranger, but rather the church is a hospital where the brokenhearted may be healed and where all the weary and troubled may find rest and take counsel together. Brothers and sisters, this church is not a place for perfect people. If you think it is, then we all need to leave. It is a place for sick and hurting people. And may we never stand in the way of those people coming to Jesus. Amen. So we are all a broken people living in a broken world. It's that simple. And unfortunately, no one is exempt from the effects of sin. We're all broken but the good news for us this morning is that God in Christ Jesus stepped into our brokenness. And Jesus was broken for us. So we're going to turn to the word now. And we're going to behold Jesus pressing in to brokenness. And before we read today's text, I'm just going to lay before you um, that John, part of John 5.3 and part of, or all of John 5.4 appears in some of your Bibles. So if you're reading King James Version, New King James Version, NASB, you will have part of John 5.3 and all of John 5.4. Um, if you have the ESV, NLT, CSB, NIV, um, it will not be in your Bible except for um, a footnote. The reason, of course, is that the earliest Greek manuscripts that were found in 1947, taking us way back um, in which our current translations come from, do not include this verse. So while some Bible translations do include this verse, most modern translations don't, but they do add it as a foot, footnote at the bottom. Now, most New Testament scholars that live today believe that a later scribe kind of um, sought to provide context to this story and added um, the last part of verse 3 and verse 4 to show the common belief of what was going on at the time, which explains what we hear, um, or what we're about to hear, this broken man say in verse 7. When we come to John 8, so John chapter 8, I'm going to slow way down and teach a little bit about what's called textual criticism and textual variances, but for today, I'm just going to include uh, the footnote um, as it appears um, for context uh, moving forward. So if you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand as we honor God's word. Beginning at verse 1. 
After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roof colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. And again, the footnote then tells us this. It says, waiting for the moving of the water, for an angel of the Lord went down at a certain seasons in the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. Now, verse 5, one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up and while I am going another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. This was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. Now verse 18, This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, hear this, making himself equal with God. Let's pray. Father, we just come before you now to your word, just asking you to speak in ways, Lord, that we need to hear, Lord, ways that address our own brokenness, showing us that you are the God who takes the brokenness in our lives and you pour forth your light and shine forth your light in and through our brokenness. Do that today, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen, and you may be seated. So before we dive in, there are a few things that uh, we must keep in mind. First of all, this event takes place during a feast. Now, we don't know what the feast is, but we know that there were three feasts in Jerusalem where um, Jerusalem men were required to be in Jerusalem. So there was the Passover. Most scholars don't believe it was the Passover because John mentions the Passover um, normally uh, throughout the gospel. Then there was the Feast of Pentecost and the Feast of Tabernacles. So we don't know which one. And of course, not only was this happening during a feast, but on the Sabbath day. So there was a pool and we find at that pool, so the pool was at the Sheep Gate. Um, most of the time people believe that the pool was used for the most part for those that were bringing in sheep for sacrifices. They would wash their sheep in this pool before bringing to the sacrifice. But there was a pool, and we find um, in this pool a great description of our world today. You have sick, you have blind, you have lame, you have those that are waiting for something to change. Think about our lives, our world. We have 
those who are spiritually sick, those who are blind. According to 2 Corinthians 4, the God of this age, Satan, blinds the eyes of unbelievers that they can't see the beauty of the gospel. You have those who are lame, who can't walk rightly on their own, just waiting for something to change. And the solution in this story and the solution in our lives is there had to be a stirring. But even more than that, there has to be an encounter. There has to be an encounter with Jesus. And just think about this man, lame, for 38 years. What in the world would that be like? Helpless for 38 years. Think of it like this. Let me just add a little context. How many of you were alive on July 17th, 1984? You know what that was? That was 38 years ago today. Was it a good year for you? So here's what we know. In 1984, the president was Ronald Reagan. The vice president was George H.W. Bush. The most popular TV shows in July of 1984 were The Cosby Show, Dallas, Dynasty, Family Ties, Murder, She Wrote, Magna P.I., The A-Team, Cheers, because that's where everybody knows your name. And, of course, as a 10-year-old, or 9-year-old, excuse me, my favorite show had one year left, Dukes of Hazard. Had to have that in my life. Top fads of 1984 were leggings, jean jackets, mini skirts, muscle shirts, parachute pants, and, strangely enough, yo-yos. Don't know how that goes together with all the others, but there you go. In 1984, the average price of a brand new car was $11,299. The average price of a new home was $79,000. A gallon of gas cost $1.20. A loaf of bread cost $0.66. A gallon of milk cost $1.89. And minimum wage was $2.75. In 1984, the world champions of the three major sports, which I'm saying major sports, football, basketball, and baseball, were the L.A. Raiders, the Boston Celtics, and the Detroit Tigers. The point being, does that seem like a long time ago to us? Have things changed? Now, things have absolutely changed. In fact... Not much has remained the same. But yet what we have here in John 5 is a man who for 38 years, for 13,800 days, nothing changed in his life. Nothing changed in his circumstances. Would you have given up? Would you have lost all hope? Would, Would you still be desiring change? Which begs the question for us, has there been a change in our lives? And are we still desiring more change? So let's unpack this morning three pictures seen in and through this text. The first we see is this, a hopeless condition leads to despair. A hopeless condition leads to despair. We read in verse 5, one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. 38 years is is long enough to become comfortable in your misery, to accept your condition, and to lose hope of ever being cured. And this invalid, according to verse 3, was surrounded by a great multitude of other sick and other broken people. 
In fact, one source that I read this week said that probably on a normal day, there were fewer than 300 people at this huge pool. But on feast days like this, where people would gather from all over Jerusalem, there would have been around 3,000 people. Now, it doesn't take much imagination to just envision the sight of humanity wasting away at this pool and what it must have smelled like. Not just the animals, but the sickness. And this would have been a very desperate place. In fact, it's ironic because the name Bethesda, the name of this pool, means house of mercy. But really, what we just read, it's a house of misery. This is a place of misery. This is a place for the miserable. And Jesus enters the scene, and his eyes survey the mass of suffering, needy, hopeless humanity all around him and then his eyes rest on one individual he looks at him and he knows something about him and he goes to him and there are there are at least nine times in the gospels that we read that jesus was moved with compassion or pity so not only does jesus know you perfectly hear this jesus is easily moved by the misery that you feel he is moved by what we feel. And there used to be a phrase that we hear or heard a lot, and thankfully it's gone away um, a little bit. But the phrase was, God helps those who... So God helps those who help themselves. I've even heard that phrase said this way. God says, God helps those who help themselves. The problem is, God never said it. It's not in the Bible. In fact, if you want to know where it came from, it came from Benjamin Franklin in 1757. Now, what we ultimately see from this text is not that Jesus helps those who help themselves. What we see is Jesus helps those who can't help themselves. Jesus helps those who have no hope in themselves. That's who Jesus helps. And here is a man who is unable to do anything for himself. And look at verse 6. You'll see it on the screen. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, don't miss this question, do you want to be healed? Now, why in the world would Jesus ask that question? It seems cruel. It seems like a cruel question to ask someone. Do you want to be healed? I was thinking about that, and then I read this week, J.A. Finley said that in those days, a man who had been healed could lose a substantial living. He had been so used to the system of being a beggar and laying around and collecting handouts from people that Jesus would ask this question. And the point is, J.A. Finley said, to be healed means that this man would have to join the the hard workforce and work for pennies a day as a hard laborer. So if this man is healed, all of a sudden his life changes with not just healing, but now new responsibilities. So Jesus is asking him, do you really want to be healed? Do you really want to be made well? Do you really want to change? And ultimately what we know and what we profess and what we proclaim is that Jesus alone is the solution to all of our hopelessness and to all of our despair. Jesus asked this man if he wanted to be well, and this man's response wasn't yes or no. It was, I have no one to put me in the pool. This man's only focus was that pool, and he couldn't get in the pool in time. 
He had no one. No friends were uh, willing to wait with him by his side to, to help him. And he was all by himself. And what we know is that this pool at Bethesda was it's mysterious. We don't know a lot. Of, it doesn't answer a lot of the questions that we have concerning it. But what we do have in John 5, hear this, is a contrast between a pool and a person named Jesus. Unlike this pool, Jesus is a person that we can have a relationship with. Unlike this pool, Jesus literally comes to us in our need. Jesus offers even something greater than physical healing for us. He heals us. He saves us. And praise God, he takes away our despair. He takes away our hopelessness, and now we hope in him. So we have, first of all, a hopeless condition leads to despair. The second picture is this. A miraculous healing leads to obedience. A miraculous healing leads to obedience. And really is the cause of obedience, part of that obedience. But verse 8 and 9 says this. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And verse 9 says, at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. A person paralyzed for 38 years would have experienced atrophy in their muscles, meaning that even if the underlying condition was cured, they would not have the strength in their muscles to walk. They wouldn't be able to do it. And what Jesus does is more than just heal the condition, he restores the man's health, but don't miss it, with just a word. Now here's what we know. We, we cannot talk a weak man strong. We cannot talk a sinful man clean. We can't talk a polluted man pure. And we certainly can't talk a dead man to life. But Jesus can. But Jesus can. And Jesus healed this man, praise God, not by taking him down into the pool. Jesus didn't cause an angel in that moment to come down and Jesus kicked the man in the pool. That's not what he did. He commanded this man to get up and walk. And what we see here, don't miss it today, brothers and sisters. There is power in the word of the Son of God. And when Jesus speaks, diseased bodies obey. When Jesus speaks, the storm and nature obeys. When Jesus speaks, demons obey him and immediately this man obeyed Jesus's command and what we see here is that the grace of God that comes through Jesus gives us the ability to obey his commands now imagine if Jesus would have told the man okay if you can get up and come to me then I will heal you that would have done nothing for this man except more despair and more cruelty but the grace of God gives life, gives the ability for us to turn to him in faith, gives us the ability to obey him. And notice, this man hadn't professed in Jesus. He hadn't even asked Jesus for healing. Nothing in this story indicates that this man deserved what happened to him, yet he still experienced the grace of God in healing. He got up at once. He took up his bed and he walked for the first time in 38 years. For the first time in 13,800 days, he walked. Don't miss the miracle and the beauty and don't miss the 
the pep in this guy's step as he was walking. And then how did the religious leaders respond? Not with cheer, but rather with criticism. In their eyes, Jesus had healed in the wrong way, meaning he had healed this man on the Sabbath. And what we see here, don't miss this, are religious leaders that are more concerned with their rules than they are with people. Don't miss it. They're more concerned with their rules, the rules that they have created, than they are with people and their needs. A man had just been healed. Shouldn't this be an occasion for celebration? Absolutely it should be. But these Jewish leaders could care less that this man could walk. And let me tell you why. They loved their rules and they loved their traditions more than they loved people. And brothers and sisters, if we are not careful, our rules and our traditions can creep in and we can put them over the needs of mankind. If we aren't careful. Listen, the most vicious people I've ever met are religious legalists. Those who have put their own thoughts above the word of God. Those who say, well, the Bible doesn't say it, but if God spoke today, I'm sure he would agree with me. Listen, if God, if your God agrees with everything you think, he's not the God of the Bible. Just so you know. But it's a sad place to be, brothers and sisters. I've even heard of churches who have said, praise God, not this one, but churches who have said, we can't let new people come in because if they come in, they'll take over. God forbid if we as a church ever try to keep people from coming to Christ because we are afraid they're going to take over. You know what that means? It means we're putting our traditions and what we think over what God declares as being the most important, which is the souls of man. And if we ever put our thoughts and our ideas above the souls of man, then we are no longer functioning as a body of Christ. We're no longer functioning as what he has called us to function. And let me just go a step further. The act of picking up his mat was not breaking the Sabbath. It wasn't breaking the Sabbath in Jesus' eyes anyway. It was instead a symbol of rejoicing in Jesus' work. It was, re- it was an act of worship. Imagine this man's joy in every single step he took. He was rejoicing. And listen, that's why we gather together. We gather together right now to worship. We gather together to work and we serve. And we gather together resting in him. In him. And then look quickly at verse 13. It says, Now this man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn. And there was a crowd in the place. Look at verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple. Now let me say this. Jesus had no intention of walking away from this man and leaving him with nothing more than just a healed body. Jesus is now after his heart. He's seeking this man out. And then look at verse 14. He says, says to him, see you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. What? What could possibly be worse than 38 years of living as an invalid? 38 years of being broken. What could be worse than that? And we know the answer to that, don't we? Eternal suffering is worse. 
eternal suffering. So though, though this infirmity had taken the best years of his life away, staying in his sin would take away his eternity. Staying in his sin. So man's greatest problem is not our health concerns. Our greatest problem is our sin before a holy God. And as bad as it may be to be helpless for 38 years, it is even worse to be in hell for eternity apart from any chance of help. And this is what Jesus is laying before him. So Jesus is calling this man to repent and warning him of judgment to come. And not only does this man need to be healed of, of his broken body, he needed to be healed of his sin. And this is where we see that the ultimate purpose of the grace of Jesus was not just to make this man healthy. It was to make this man holy. To make him holy. Don't sin. Turn from your sin. Turn to me. So miraculous healing leads to obedience, which leads us to number three. A hostile response leads to a gracious revelation. A hostile response leads to a gracious revelation. Look at verse 16 with me. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. So at first, they persecuted Jesus because he went against their laws. Then look at verse 17. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. And this is what we see that, yes, God rested in the Genesis creation account on the seventh day. He rested from creation. But God has never, there's never been one day, one moment, one hour, one minute, one second where God has ever rested from being God. Let me just tell you just a second. If God rested from just one second from being God, chaos would break out. God has never rested from sustaining and providing and caring for his creation, because that's the kind of God we have. And Jesus is saying very clearly, God sustains, God provides, and I do the same. And don't miss verse 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, not just to persecute him now, to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, hear this, at the very end of verse 18, he was even calling God his own father. Don't miss this last phrase. Making himself equal with God. Listen, the declaration of scripture is this. Either Jesus is God or he's not. He's either God or he's not. But Jesus declared himself to be God. And then he backed up that declaration with all the things that he did, showing himself to be God. And understand this. Please understand this. Jesus was not killed because he healed the sick. He wasn't killed because he cared for the outcast. He wasn't killed because he fed the poor. He was killed because he openly and repeatedly declared to be equal with God. That's why he was killed. We might not always get it, or we might not always even recognize his claims, but the Jews of his day, they understood exactly what he was saying, and they wanted to kill him because of it. Or to put it a different way, Jesus is the only founder of any major religion to ever say that he was God. He's the only founder to ever say that he was God. And his claim is that Jesus is saying, I am without equal and I am more than able to take that which is broken, which includes all of us, and mend us, 
heal us and save us by his grace. In closing, I want to lay something before you. A, a Japanese legend started in the 15th century tells the story of a mighty shogun warrior who broke his favorite tea bowl and sent it away for repairs. And when he received it back, the bowl was held together by ugly metal staples. Now, he could still use it, but the shogun was disappointed. So still hoping to restore his beloved bowl to its foremost beauty, what he did was he asked a craftsman to find a more elegant solution. So this craftsman wanted to try a new technique, something that would add beauty to this bowl as well as repair it. So what he did is he mended every crack in the bowl with a lacquer resin filled with real gold. So when the tea bowl was returned to the shogun, there were streaks of gold running through it, not only telling its story that it had been broken, but adding value and adding beauty to it. Now this message or this method, excuse me, is known as kintsugi. It means golden joinery. So taking gold and joining something together. You can see an example up here of a broken bowl that has been joined together and gold filled in now to these cracks, joining it together, showing and adding beauty and adding value. Now as you look at that, stop and ponder this idea of restoration. How many of us have ever been broken at one time in our lives? All of us. All of us. That We all know, apart from Christ, all of us are broken. Yet here's what we also know. Just because we follow Christ doesn't mean that we still not have broken moments. We follow Christ and we're still broken. We still get broken at times by, by sadness, by death, by hurt and pains that happen to us in our lives. And then how many of us have ever bought into the lie of the enemy that because we are broken, we're worthless? Oftentimes we buy into that because of our brokenness, we're worthless and there's no value in us. Did you know that, that church pews every Sunday are filled with broken people and unfortunately filled with broken people who try to hide their brokenness. Why? For fear of being tossed aside. For fear of not meeting the requirements that oftentimes we might try to show. And I say that because oftentimes, guess what? We come to church, we've had the worst week of our life, we're struggling, and we get out of our car and someone says, how are you doing today? And we go, I'm just great. Never been better. And sometimes people who are broken and hurting look at us and go, they never have any problems. That's not true. Ever. And yet, because we are so scared to show our fragileness, to show our brokenness, to show the things that we struggle with, sometimes we push people away. I think of what the psalmist said in Psalm 31. Listen to what the psalmist says, Psalm 31, 12. I have forgotten like one who is, I have been forgotten like one who is dead. Listen to what he says. I have become like a broken vessel. I've become broken. You know, that the, one of the names of God in the Bible is Jehovah Rapha, which means the God who heals. He's the God who heals. 
During his ministry, Jesus gravitated towards the broken, and he healed those physically and spiritually. In Mark 5, Jesus drew near a demon-possessed man who lived in a cemetery. In John 4, Jesus had an appointment with a shamed woman who came to draw water at noon to not um, face the judgment of others. In Luke 18, Jesus pursued a short and statured man named Zacchaeus in a sycamore tree. In John 11, Jesus came to two sisters who were mourning the death of their brother, Lazarus. And according to John 3.16, Jesus came to a world full of lost people, separated from God, showing the love of God that if we believe in him, we might not perish but have everlasting life. I want us to, as you see the, this title screen, on that title screen is a picture of a person and their brokenness. And brothers and sisters, all of us, apart from Christ, are broken in a million different ways. We're broken in a million different ways. We are hopeless. We are helpless. And let me say it again. We cannot help ourselves. We can't help ourselves. But praise be to God, our Savior has come to us in our brokenness. He has called us from darkness to marvelous light. He has brought us from death to life. And the beauty is that God has taken us who have called upon him and he has filled us with something greater and more valuable than gold. And what's that? His grace. He has filled us with his grace. And because of our brokenness and because of him living in us he is able to shine forth from us through our brokenness for the world to see and what we are declaring to a broken world around us is not look at how well i i shine we are declaring to a broken world look at how well god shines through my brokenness how well god shines through that which is broken which is me and which is you and we have been filled not with gold, something better than gold. We've been filled with his grace. That as sin increases, his grace abounds all the more. Praise be to him for healing that which is broken. For healing us and using us in our brokenness. Oh, today that we would see the beauty of what God has done for us. Or if you've never turned to him for salvation, you would desire that even today. I'm going to ask you to stand, and we're going to ask Brother Frank and the musicians to come forward as we enter this time of invitation and consecration. And let us pray together. Father, we just rejoice in you. We praise you. We thank you, God, for your amazing grace. We thank you, Lord, knowing how broken we are broken in so many different ways, and yet, Jesus, you didn't shy away from brokenness. Lord, you drew near to the broken, and you have drawn near to us, and we thank you that you have filled us. Every crack, Lord, every piece of our brokenness, you have filled with your grace. There's not one sin, Lord, that Jesus, you didn't die for, that you didn't redeem, and we praise you, Lord, that through our salvation, you stand ready to shine forth your glory. 
shine forth your forgiveness, to shine forth your redemption and restoration through our brokenness for the world to see. And as we have been saying over and over again each week, our world is so dark and so desperate, and yet light shines so much more beautifully in darkness. Or shine through us, in us and through us for your glory. Lord, I pray for anyone that's in this room or will be here today that doesn't know you, that today would be a day of, of healing spiritually. Today would be a day of, Lord, you restoring the brokenness of sin and shame and bringing salvation and by your grace filling every, every hole of brokenness in those lives. Thank you, Jesus, for who you are and what you continue to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.